Ye who read are still among the living, but I who write shall have long since gone my way into the region of shadows. Greetings, Poe fans. Welcome back to our podcast. And I am Carmen Bolden. And I am Jeannie Smith. And we are the Potastic Two. I kind of rushed that, Jeannie. <laughs> I was wondering. Oh, where are you running off to? I know, I know. Okay, we're going to get started, and we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Jeff Thompson. And Jeff, we brought you here for the podcast because we want to hear about your love and knowledge of dark shadows, and also some of the Poe elements and in dark shadows, as well as uh, Dan Curtis, and you've done a lot of research and writing projects in your books about um, all of these things. And we're so excited to have you here and hear about all these things. So let's go ahead and get started with just if you want to do a little short introduction and then kind of go right into um, just basically um, how you got hooked or you know became interested in Dark Shadows. Okay, thank you, Carmen and Jeannie. I'm thrilled to be here with you and to talk with all of your listeners on the podcast. I'm Jeff Thompson. I live here in Nashville, and for 35 years, I taught English at Tennessee State University here in town until I retired a little bit early recently. And uh, concurrent with most of that time, I was uh, the weekend announcer at WAMB, which was Nashville's big band, easy listening radio station. Oh, very so cool. I, I was involved with popular culture, uh, sharing it with my students and uh, playing great music on the radio and writing. I've, I've written for fanzines, magazines, websites, and uh, chapters for multi-author books and introductions to uh, the Hermes Press reprints of the Gold Key Dark Shadows comic books. And then I have written three complete books about producer-director Dan Curtis, who created Dark Shadows, um, produced The Night Stalker, and directed Trilogy of Terror, The Winds of War, Burnt Offerings. Here's one of them, The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis. Yes. And you're holding another one. House yes. of Dan Curtis, mm -hmm. a play on the uh, name of the movie House of Dark Shadows. Mm -hmm. And after I wrote that book, uh, a fan friend of mine said, well, now that you've written House of Dan Curtis, you have to write Night of Dan Curtis to match the other <laughs> Dark Shadows movie, Night of Dark Shadows. So I wrote mm -hmm. Nights, plural, of Dan Curtis, all about his most epic productions, his two World War II miniseries, his uh, three-hour Western movie, his adaptation of Dracula, written by Richard Matheson and starring Jack Palance, and uh, Curtis's UFO miniseries, Intruders, They Are Among Us. Um, I uh, did not start watching Dark Shadows on the very first day, June 27th, 1966. Like many fans did not. That's why it was such a low-rated TV show for the first several months. Um, but 10 months into the a uh, gothic serial that ran on ABC Monday through Friday from 1966 to 1971. Dan Curtis, who uh, had been told by ABC that the show was going to be canceled, added a 
vampire character, uh, which had never been done before on daytime TV, the vampire Barnabas Collins, an ancestor of the present-day Collins family, and he was released from a chained coffin and began a reign of terror in Collinsport, Maine. But uh, because he was so uh, beloved by the viewers, uh, he soon showed a more remorseful, vulnerable side. And Dan Curtis realized that Barnabas Collins couldn't simply be a, a, a one-dimensional monster of the month or something on the show, that he he had to become, you know, a, a, a symp more sympathetic uh, protagonist of the show. Um, I watched Dark Shadows between the ages of 8 and 12, and uh, one day in September of 1967, I was homesick from school, and I was flipping through the channels mm -hmm. and uh, came across Dark Shadows. I didn't know what it was, but from the very first scene, I was hooked because the first scene I saw was of David Collins, a boy my age, having a, a nightmare. And in his dream, he and Sarah, a girl my age, were in the basement of the old house, the place where Barnabas Collins lived. And they were in the cellar and uh, amid the cobwebs, and they saw a coffin in the middle of the room. And then the coffin lid opened, and out came the vampire Barnabas Collins brandishing his wolf's head cane. So obviously I was hooked from that moment on and watched every single day from then on and uh, collected all of the Dark Shadows memorabilia, the mm -hmm. books, comic books, trading cards, games, puzzles, everything. And even after Dark Shadows was canceled, I continued reading the Gold Key comic books and uh, the uh, Dark Shadows gothic novels, paperback novels by Dan Ross, who wrote under the pseudonym of Marilyn Ross, and later I became friends with him and his wife, Marilyn. Oh, cool. And then as a teenager, I began writing for Dark Shadows fanzines, including Kathy Resch's fanzine, The World of Dark Shadows. So um, it's been a lifelong love affair with Dark Shadows and uh, studying all of Dan Curtis's four dozen productions. I, I was always excited to see in the TV guide in the 70s and 80s and later whenever Dan Curtis returned uh, with a movie that he had directed, mm -hmm. sometimes with Richard Matheson writing the script or William F. Nolan writing the script. So, um, um, and in all three of my books, I cover all four dozen of Curtis's productions, but I uh, specialize in certain ones in the different books, in the television horrors of Dan Curtis, I focus on his horror productions, his okay. two Night Stalker movies and his adaptations of Dracula, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Turn of the Screw, The Picture of Dorian Gray and others. Mm -hmm. And um, in uh, the book you have, uh, House of Dan Curtis, I look at his his uh, uh, mysteries and crime dramas. He did two movies about the Bureau of Investigation agent Melvin Purvis and did quite a few late-night ABC Wide World mysteries, uh, mm -hmm. some of which in, involved the Dark Shadows actors whom he continued to use in future productions. And then, as I said a moment ago, Knights of Dan Curtis is about his epic miniseries and Dracula and the last ride of the Dalton gang, the Western, and so on. All right. Thank you for sharing all of that. It, it's just, it's fascinating. It really is. And one, one of the things that Jeannie and I were talking about is 
before watching Dark Shadows, were you interested in uh, like Gothic literature or anything like that? Or was Dark Shadows what really was the kind of hook for you? Well, I, of course, had, had already started reading comic books. Mm -hmm. And so I was familiar with so the supernatural and sci-fi and horror. And I had read classics illustrated, including the, the Frankenstein issue and so on. So, uh, yes, I believe that I, oh, and I, and before Dark Shadows, I loved uh, the Munsters and the Adams Family. So, uh, yes, I, I, I was familiar with classic horror before then, but, but Dark Shadows really cemented my interest in gothic horror, uh, vampires, um, witches, werewolves, uh, time travel, especially. Oh, yes. And, uh, yes. and, and uh, background music in films. I became a, a film music collector and I've written some liner notes for some soundtracks because Robert Cobert's music for Dark Shadows is so distinctive. It's, yes. it's like the, another character, like the music for Batman or Downton Abbey or other uh, TV shows uh, in which the music plays an integral part. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Robert Cobert scored almost all of Dan Curtis's production. So when, when you saw Dan Curtis's name and heard Robert Cobert's music, you knew that you were in for a treat. So um, yes. Dark Shadows began my interest in, in, in all of those things, time travel, music, mm -hmm. costumes, acting, um, writing, everything. Oh, that awesome. that's awesome. Um, I, I was going to say, uh, my husband walked through one day while I was watching an episode of Dark Shadows and that, you know, pivotal music when something's happened and it's leading the mystery of what's going to happen next. And he asked me, he said, is, you know, with that being the mid 60s when that happened, was that kind of the origin of that style of music to indicate you know, and I said, I don't know, it's something I'd have to look up, but I thought that, you know, because it's, to me, his, the Cobert's music is fantastic. It's beautiful. Oh, it is, yes. Well, I, I think those musical stingers had existed in movies, Max Steiner in King Kong and others mm -hmm. had done it, but but you're right, it probably became a, a staple of TV and especially soap operas mm -hmm. with Robert Cobert doing it. And the, the Dark Shadows music was uh, unusual in that it was a small orchestra. Uh, it was not mm -hmm. just one organ or an organ and a piano, the way uh, the other soap operas were from the 50s, uh, up, many mm -hmm. of them up until uh, the early 70s. So uh, Robert Cobert with his music for Dark Shadows and later The Doctors mm -hmm. added orchestral, full, you know, lush music to the soap opera. And I think that that added to it. I, I, I agree. It, it, to me, it adds so much more depth to the production. Absolutely. Um, Jeannie, I was going to say, Jeannie, jump in anytime. I know we, we were having a discussion about the Munsters and Adams family before you jumped on. And we were kind of talking with dark shadows starting in 66 and Munsters and Adams family, both only having two years for their, um, show at the same time from 64 to 66 it's like did dan curtis you know with him almost getting canceled until you know until he added barnabas it's like it was almost a continuation a little bit you know in a more of a dramatic way not a comedic way um do you think that played into his development of adding barnabas 
Uh, very possibly. You're right that the, the Dark Shadows is like the other side of the coin of the monsters. Mm -hmm. It's the dramatic side of a, yeah. a family of supernatural creatures, and, mm -hmm. or and it's also a supernatural upstairs-downstairs yeah. sort of story. Um, but yes, Dan Curtis was uh, a big fan of the Universal Monster movies, and one of his favorite movies was The Innocents, Jack okay. Clayton's uh, version of The Turn of the Screw, and okay. Curtis later had a turn of the screw type possession story on dark shadows two times. And then he uh, filmed his own version of the turn of the screw and even found the actress who had played uh, uh, the housekeeper in that 1961 innocence movie and, mm -hmm. and put her in his movie. So uh, he, he liked the universal monster movies. And uh, uh, I think that's, uh, that helped him. Probably the monsters was in the back of his mind. And then mm -hmm. um, as, as the show was nearing cancellation, he had already used some ghosts and some mysterious elements and a Phoenix fire creature, a woman who burns and comes, rises back from, rises from her ashes. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, when, when the show was on the verge of cancellation, his three daughters who were about my age and the age of most of us little kids who were watching Mm -hmm. um, told him, make it scarier. So mm -hmm. he, he thought to himself, well, what scares me the most? A vampire. So I'll add a vampire. And okay. uh, Curtis's and the writer's original plan for Barnabas was that he would just be the next monster on the show and would last maybe three months. And uh, he'd bite people and cause havoc. And then one of the good characters would drive a stake through his heart. And then that right. would be it. But um, uh, Shakespearean actor Jonathan Frid brought such uh, depth and mm -hmm. pathos and emotion to the role that um, uh, Jonathan used to tell the story. Uh, a, a few, uh, when I, after I'd been on for a, a, a few weeks, Dan Curtis uh, brought me some letters and I, I thought to myself, oh no, this is my pink slip. But no, it was fan letters. And then the next week, Jonathan received even more, and then he started receiving bags of letters and boxes of letters. Wow. And even had to uh, ask some of the New York area fans, the, the viewers, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, meet him on some Saturday mornings to help answer the mail. So um, um, Jonathan Frid had suddenly had become a, a, a heartthrob and a, a matinee idol in the afternoon, something that he never dreamed or really wanted, but was yeah. was always very flattered and grateful to the fans for their devotion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, he, he did. I mean, his the again, I started watching it um, right right before, you know, Willie opens the coffin and everything and he appears and the couple episodes right before that, they, they were good. It was interesting learning about the family. I, and I'm anxious to go back to the original, you know, start. But he added so much and his acting skills, style, uh, just his character. The Like you said, the depth is a great word. Um, it, it just it had me mesmerized to, um, you know, using a, a Poe. <laughs> Poe link there. And I think, Jeannie, didn't you have, a? I think we were talking about, didn't you have a question about like having that supernatural element on daytime TV? Yes, that's what I was going to ask him is about how Dan Curtis managed to throw out the genre of certain elements from the supernatural world 
into a modern daytime soap opera? How did he figure out that that would actually be acceptable? Because the Munsters and the Adams family are both, they were like a prime time. So yes. why would the, you know, the soap opera angle always threw me is how did he, you know, pitch this idea and it became to fruitation to be played on daytime television. And especially after he introduced the vampire, how did it continue to be accepted? Because if you look at all the other soap operas of that time frame and everything, they, they didn't match. It was like, there was no commonality between dark shadows and the big three that I always remember of like, uh, guiding light as the world turns general hospital, those kinds of shows. So would, did you ever find out how Dan Curtis even came up with the idea of wanting it to be daytime television rather than prime time and how it was taken to keep that on with a supernatural aspect of it? Dan Curtis wanted, uh, to uh, pitch Dark Shadows as a nighttime show. That's uh, what he uh, intended when he um, um, uh, had the meeting with the ABC executives. Um, in in mid-1965, Curtis had a, a, a vivid dream, like so many works of art, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and songs and paintings and, and everything. It came to him in a dream. He, he had a vivid dream and saw a, a young woman riding on a train uh, along the ocean and going to uh, a, a forbidding, mysterious old house. And she goes up to the door and uh, she hears wolves howling and she knocks on the door. And then that was all that he dreamed. Uh, but wow. he, he took that idea to ABC and, and wanted to do a... Uh, uh, a nighttime show. And and the executive said, well, Dan, isn't that just Jane Eyre? And he said, well, is anybody doing it right now? If not, let's do it. Um, but uh, somehow the executives decided, I guess, to shore up the, the daytime schedule because um, ABC really didn't have much going on in the daytime yet, except for uh, General Hospital and uh, Let's Make a Deal. And I think maybe the dating game and the newlywed game had begun or were starting around that time. Mm -hmm. So they decided to put it on in the daytime. And so uh, um, Curtis worked with Art Wallace, who later wrote some Star Trek episodes and things like that, to to uh, work on the actual uh, story projection and the characters. So that's why Art Wallace is credited uh, throughout the run of the show, even though he didn't stay longer than the first three months or so. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, the uh, the original um, point of Dark Shadows was was just to be a mysterious gothic romance serial, um, just a, a couple of steps beyond the edge of night or the secret storm. Um, not necessarily supernatural, but mysterious, like the gothic novels that were very popular in the 60s, written by Dan Ross, Marilyn Ross, as well as uh, Phyllis A. Whitney and Dorothy Daniels and others. Um, and and it was a good idea. And I think you will really like those um, um, early episodes because they had a lot of atmosphere at local color mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, um, and then every once in a while you hear, you know, ghostly sobbing in, in the halls of Collinwood and 
there's a locked room mystery and much talk of ghosts and uh, three ghosts who haunt a cliff at uh, uh, the estate. And But unfortunately, it, it was not receiving top-notch ratings. It was a good idea, and those early episodes are very interesting. But mm. even back then, I guess, the networks wanted more instant results. And so uh, uh, ABC said, we're going to cancel it. So then Dan Curtis added the vampire. And once he added that, then he, he added another ghost and uh, just went full force with the idea of the supernatural. And then, of course, after uh, Jonathan Frid's Barnabas had become uh, such a well-loved, almost sympathetic character, um, Curtis said, well, what can we do now? Okay, well, let's show how he became a vampire. And so uh, the show, no daytime show had done this, went back in time. Uh, Victoria Winters, the young woman on the train in the first episode, it participates in a seance and suddenly she is thrust backward into time into the year 1795 when Barnabas is still a young mortal man. But in one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest story ever told on Dark Shadows, we learn how and why Barnabas becomes a vampire. And it's a, a heavy, emotional Shakespearean drama. It's just fantastic. It is. Uh, it is. And then when, when that ends and the show comes back to the present, which is now the year 1968, then you'll see that Curtis and the writers uh, start using uh, ideas from Frankenstein and the turn of the screw and um, um, and many ideas all uh, from Edgar Allan Poe, the cask of Amontillado. Mm -hmm. in, in the 1795 storyline, Barnabas bricks up one of his adversaries and then later, uh, in the course of the show, Barnabas himself is bricked up two times. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the Telltale Heart uh, in the 1897 story, the, the storyline when Dark Shadows had its highest ratings, Quentin Collins hears the, the heartbeat of his dead grandmother. Um, and, uh, and also in that storyline, there's a, a pit and the pendulum moment when uh, one of Quentin's enemies uh, uh, ties him to a table with a swinging blade coming closer and closer and mm. uh, and um, oh the the, pre the premature burial um, uh, there's a, a story in which um, Elizabeth Collins Stoddard played by the Hollywood movie star Joan Bennett um, experiences uh, that and later in the series Quentin is buried alive two times um, <laughs> And, and even even little touches like in 1897, there is a a a, a very um, strict uh, sparse school house called Worthington Hall, run by a, a, a stern headmaster, a martinet, kind of like uh, the uh, the character in uh, William Wilson when the boy is at the school and and he's yeah. miserable. Uh, and and many other Poe touches, you know, the all of the lighted candles and the, and the literal shadows and uh, mm -hmm. the paintings. The paintings on the show are uh, very very important. The the paintings of Barnabas, the portrait of Josette, uh, portraits of the portrait of Quentin, which causes him to become a Dorian Gray type character. The painting keeps him young. So mm -hmm. the writers and Curtis, all of whom worked together closely, Curtis was involved in the writing, uh, uh, borrowed elements from from many, 
many stories and myths, there's a, a, a great Orpheus and Eurydice moment when two characters go down into the underworld. So, um, uh, but uh, even though the you know some people say the writers were ripping off or copying everything, and true enough, they did lift ideas from all of the classics that everyone has read or has heard about or seen movies about. But the way they they handled it made them original and and fresh again. You know the way they combined the elements and presented them in a new way. Uh, made it original and for many of the uh, viewers especially the little kids who may not have read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or Frankenstein or Dracula or Poe or Hawthorne it mm -hmm. was new to them but then somebody probably said oh that's like that Poe story or that's like that movie yeah. and that that's how uh, the viewers we fans broadened our horizons because we went back to the primary sources Absolutely. Having seen it on Dark Shadows or in comic books or in movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree because um, when I, while I've been watching it, yeah, little nuggets of different stories will come back to me and I'm just like, oh, that's like this or that's like that, you know, um, and it just it just it's exciting, you know, because it makes you have fond memories of when you read those stories originally. And like you said, new viewers can get hooked on different things, you know, kind of like a network, <laughs> a network of gothic horror. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, do you think that. Uh, Dan Curtis was like, do you think he was a Poe fan or do you think he had, you know, I know like with Universal Monsters, he really liked that. Do you think he had favorite authors? Did he ever say, because he did, he did such a variety of the different core films of um, Dorian Gray and, you know, and such. I'm not sure that's a good question. I know he, he loved the turn of the screw and the movie, mm -hmm. The Innocence. Yeah, uh, but um, I'm not sure about uh, what other novels um, he he may have, and stories he may have liked. I know his longtime secretary would uh, go with her husband on trips to Europe and and would go through bookstores in Europe and bring bring back all sorts of books for him to read. Oh, nice. I, so I'm sure some of them were Poe and and Hawthorne and mm -hmm. uh, Daphne du Maurier and others, but. Also, books um, about uh, legends, myths, ghost stories, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, supernatural witchcraft, things like that. But okay. um, I I'm not sure about what some of his favorite writers were. Okay. Yeah. And I and we weren't sure if you would know that or not. We were just like, you know, you know, talking about all the different elements that we were going to discuss today. And that came up and it's like, I wonder if Jeff does know this. It's just, you know, it's fascinating to, you know, see, you know, what, um, you know, directors and producers and things and writers have, like what their favorites are and what really motivates them to do what they do. Um, and let's see. Uh, I was trying to think, Jeannie, what else we were going to ask Jeff a couple of other things. Um, do you, can you think of what was something else you were going to ask? Well, I was going to talk about how, you know, of course we're on the daytime and this is not nighttime, but the whole, the genre aspect of it. Uh, I mean, was it actually, you know, it stayed on for five years 
correct correct me if I'm wrong yes. Jeff it was five years and you said that within 10 months of the first publication or showing they were going to cancel it so I'm curious to think would it would it have lasted longer than five years because if you think about the soap operas today they still are on the air they are still going strong and having those arcs and everything so what was the defining point of dark shadows finally losing its momentum i guess is my curiosity is it did it have anything to do with the time frame the genre or the total just like segue in the television industry to where it wasn't as popular anymore because you know the adams family was only two years Monsters was only two years. Then you got the Dark Shadows that was only five. So was it that the genre was losing focus, that a lot of people were losing their wants for the horror, the the supernatural, that kind of thing? What kind of thoughts do you have about would it have been able to sustain as much as the other soap operas in the end, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, you're right that five years for a soap opera is a very, very short time. You know, when when As the World Turns, Guiding Light, Days of Our Lives, and uh, and others have, have run for decades. But I think the fact that it was a supernatural series eventually limited it, um, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and and by the end of the show, uh, the uh, the writers were starting to repeat themselves. There had been two turn-of-the-screw-type possession storylines and uh, things like that. And um, um, I think some of the actors were beginning to to tire of the um, uh, the regimen. It, uh, as Nancy Barrett, who played Carolyn Stoddard, said, the show was perhaps too ambitious. Uh, and it is amazing to see everything they did with the uh, uh, now- um, uh, rudimentary base uh, special effects and things like that, but but really uh, through the costumes and the sets and of course the great acting and the special effects really made it real. It it it, mm -hmm. it was truly a, a universe that they created, but it was a lot of of hard work. Um, and uh, toward the end, Jonathan Frid uh, uh, was losing interest in playing Barnabas. He he didn't want to become typecast like George Reeves as Superman had and that's why for the last three months of the show he was not playing Barnabas he was the show went into parallel time for the second time during the run of the show and um uh Jonathan Fred was playing Bramwell Collins who was the son of the now dead Barnabas Collins in that world of 1841 parallel time Okay. And even even Dan Curtis himself admitted that uh, he was losing interest in the show. He wanted to go on and and uh, work on in films, and um, of course, and, and talk about ambitious. Uh, the the cast filmed House of Dark Shadows while they were doing the TV show. Um, uh, some of the the it was during the nineteen seventy parallel time storyline. So. Uh, Barnabas, uh, Julia, uh, Maggie, and others are missing for uh, a while because they're up in uh, Tarrytown, New York, at the Lindhurst Estate, filming House of Dark Shadows. So uh, half the cast was up there making the movie, and the other half, led by David Selby and Laura Parker, who were not in the movie, 
were holding the show together. And uh, and then um, uh, immediately after they taped the final episode of Dark Shadows, they went back up to Lyndhurst and filmed Night of Dark Shadows. And, and then uh, in that same year, I guess, uh, yeah, Dan Curtis and his wife and three daughters made the move from New York to Los Angeles. And then he uh, began producing The Night Stalker. He didn't direct it. John Llewellyn Moxie, a horror hotel and uh, others directed it. But then uh, Curtis uh, decided, well, uh, you know, I'm producing these shows, but why why not? I, I'll cut out the middleman, I, 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 the director. I'll just start directing more of them myself because uh, uh, the director of Dark Shadows, one of them, Leela Swift, um, uh, one of the first female directors in the golden age of television. She started in the 50s. Leela <laughs> Swift directed over 800 of the 1,225 episodes. And she more or less took Dan Curtis under her wing and taught him how to direct he directed a few of the uh, late 1795 story uh, uh, episodes and mm -hmm. and then later directed some in, in the 1897. And um, so he re she really taught him how to direct. And um, and then um, some of his influences in directing, one of them was Sam Peckinpah. He said that, that uh, he, he saw the Wild Bunch and was... Uh, shocked and fascinated by the violence, and that is perhaps why House of Dark Shadows is much more violent than anything you see on the TV show. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I think it was just the show had just run its course. Uh, you know, you can continue to think up more everyday storylines for a soap opera, and they reuse stories over and over too. But mm -hmm. you know, there's I guess there's only so many times you can go back in time or or drive a stake through a vampire's heart or <laughs> see a werewolf or this that and the other so um yeah. uh, the the writers were were becoming exhausted too and i think some of the actors and curtis so and the the ratings had gone down you know uh in the summer of 1969 20 million people were watching dark shadows and that that's phenomenal to think because yes. you know in today's tv a show like ncis or the big bang theory or or the super bowl uh, will get you know millions of viewers but probably not 20 million and yet that that's how many people were watching back in the days when there were three networks you know mm -hmm. um but after the 1897 storyline uh, the next storyline was one based on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, actually, okay. which was uh, very different, very unusual, very uh, strange. And and some of the uh, the fans did not like the way the show was going. Um, and uh, the, the ratings began to drop off, which was unfortunate because after that came the 1970 parallel time storyline, which is one of my favorites based on elements from Poe's Lygia and from Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Um, and, um, uh, and then the, the later, the next trip back into time was, was very good too. But by then fewer and fewer people were watching, but even when the show ended 12 million people were watching it, which would be, that's, you know, the number one yeah. TV show today. That That's amazing. And I get, I guess there's something to be said for quality over quantity. Um, I know just 
growing up um, as a child and teen, I'd watch soap operas with my mom and stuff, especially during the summer. And they, soap operas do generally, you know, rerun or, you know, reuse different story arcs and things like that. And so um, that kind of makes sense why, you know, he, you know, he wanted to move on to something else and everybody was kind of at the same time feeling that way. Right. Right. 